0: Church. Uh, today, as we continue our study through the book of Acts, and so uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be a little bit ambitious, but we're beginning in Acts chapter 23. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you want to turn there or your phone app, however you roll with that. Let's go to Lord in prayer, and we'll get right into it. And Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for your many blessings to us. Just um, thank you for the time we've had to worship you through song. Um, Now please teach us from your word and that you would speak to each one of our hearts and lives. We thank you for your great love for us that was so um, evidently displayed as the blood of your Son poured out for us on the cross. We're thankful that the grave could not hold him, but that our Savior and King, Jesus, has victory over sin and death. And so, Jesus, we praise your name. We're here to remember you, to give you glory and praise this morning. Help us to do so through your Holy Spirit. And, um, Lord, we we thank you for all you've done for us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so just a a little bit of a recap um, of this section of the book of Acts. Um, We have Paul... In chapters 20, beginning of chapter 21, traveling to Jerusalem, um, he knows that the Lord has directed him to go there. He also knows, and it's confirmed everywhere he goes uh, along the way, that there will be trouble there. Um, It is going to be a difficult time. Um, He meets with the the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and then um, he goes to the temple to fulfill um, his vows and um, to make a testimony to the people there, and He's assaulted in the temple. The guards have to come and, and grab him. And then he's able to share um, his testimony in front of you know, the entire um, audience there uh, to proclaim what, what Jesus has done uh, for him. Last week, we talked about our testimonies and how our testimonies you know, all have three basic parts. Um, you know, what was our life like before we met Jesus? How did we meet Jesus? And how has our life been changed you know since having met him, and so you know, everybody can share their story just using that simple um, approach and we just had encouragement you know, for all of us to strive uh, to do that. I hope you did that last week, if not, uh, I hope we have opportunity to do that you know this week and um, take courage and and go for it. but then we also see at the end there of chapter twenty two Paul uses his Roman citizenship to avoid Um, A beating and um, someone pointed out that I thought was a good to point out that the sort of beating that he, um, you know, didn't want to endure at that time was the worst sort that was given. It was the scourging. It's the same thing that Jesus, you know, received um, as part of his trial before his crucifixion. It's the really brutal one, you know, where they take the, you know, nine, it's like the cat of nine tails, um, you know, with a different. Objects of you know metal or glass or things in it, and it just really, you know, a person can can die um, under that sort of a of assault. Uh, so he uses citizenship to uh, to avoid that. And then let's pick up in chapter twenty two, verse thirty, and it says, "On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, um, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them." And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Um, and so there's a couple things here when he makes that quote. He's basically making a direct quotation of Exodus chapter 22, verses, verse 28, when he says, You should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Uh, and, and he's letting them know there, even as he does this, that. You know he has strived, you know, throughout his life to live with a good conscience. That um, you know he's not looking to just um, be obstinate for the sake of being obstinate. You know, and, and even in doing something that he shouldn't have done if he had known it. You know, it's one of those things that he did without knowing um, exactly this person's position. So he's able to accomplish a couple of different things here. One, uh, he's able to tell the truth that they are not going by the law. And he's also able to give testimony that he's not looking to just, you know, flout that law. it goes back to what uh, Paul, um, you know, has, has taught throughout his ministry, that to the Jewish people, he acts like a Jewish person. And to Gentiles, he acts to Gentiles. You know, he becomes all things to all men that in some way he might, you know, win some. And so that's an important um, you know, element that he's willing to humble himself and to do things that he doesn't necessarily have to do as a follower of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, you know, he didn't have to go to the temple to make any sort of vow or to do any sort of thing like that. But he does so, so that he can have a voice and opportunity to share Jesus with those people. And that's a great lesson, you know, for us. Um, we see that in in church history. A lot of times, our, our most effective missionaries have been those. Who have, without sinning, done everything they could to adopt, you know, the ways of the culture that they're a part of, you know, and so they'll change their dress, uh, you know, they won't wear Western clothes; they'll wear the clothes of the people that they're min- min- trying to minister to, you know, they'll try to make those adjustments as they can, and not having, you know, not taking with them a a feeling of superiority or that their ways are are better that things that are just cultural things that don't really you know, matter that much, Um, and so they're willing to, you know, be all things to all people, and that's a great missionary mindset. So let's continue, though, in verse 6 through 10, verses 6 through 10, it says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid... That Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And what we love about this is that Paul had this ability in all the situations that he's in because he knows, you know, we've talked about his his deep knowledge um, of his of his own roots of being an Israelite um, and he, you know he, being a Pharisee. He's not lying there. I mean, that's how he was raised. Um, he you know he had sat. Uh, under the teaching of the most respected Pharisee and all of Israel. Um, we talked about more of that last week. But you see, he's, he's able in all of these situations to um, bring to the heart of the matter uh, what needs to be brought. And he wants them to know and to, to wrestle again with the truth of the resurrection. And this was always part of the great hope that Israel had all throughout the Old Testament you know, was this hope of of resurrection that, you know, your short years um, on this earth are not the end of the story, that there is more to come, that there's more to just living for a few years or what we would consider a lot of years. But if you think about time, I mean, a 100 years goes by very, very quickly, very, very quickly. And, you know, we'd be impressed if anybody here made it to be a 100, you know, but that's a that's what we consider a long life, but in the scheme of things, it, it's, it goes so quickly. You know, it's been two thousand years since you know this was this was this. These things happened, and these things were recorded for us. Um, that's a long time, you know, and and we need to recognize that and and to be aware of that um, in our lives. Our lives are short, and what are we going to live them for? What matters? And it's important that we have. a a good theology, a good understanding of who God is and what His ways are. And so in this regard, the Pharisees had a better theology, a better theological understanding than the Sadducees did. They had a better understanding. Um, They understood that the resurrection was real, that angels were real, that the Spirit was real. Um, And the Sadducees, though... You know, being um, more perhaps more um, physically minded, you know, rejected those spiritual things and those spiritual concepts, and so Paul uses that you know to his advantage. But he also wants to give testimony: that the resurrection is is our hope. You know, if there, and, and it's like he says in 1 Corinthians 15, with, if there is no resurrection, there is no hope. And if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then there is no hope. That we're, of all people, to be most pitied because we're still in our sins. We need to understand that without the resurrection of Jesus, we have absolutely nothing. So the Pharisees had a better doctrine, but in practice, they were lacking. And so we need to strive in our lives for our theological understanding and for how we practically live for that to match up, for those to be in step you know, with one another. Because you know, sometimes people will have a, you know, a, um, a good theology, they could tell you all the right answers, but yet not live according to the ways of Jesus. And, you know, what is that usually called? Hypocrisy, right? You know, and, and if we're honest, we all, we're all hypocrites to a certain level. But there's a difference between being a, a struggling hypocrite and someone striving not to be a hypocrite and somebody who's just living as a hypocrite. And that's what happens when there's a good, good theology, but without the practice. And then, you know, you have also have people, and, you know, compared to others we would say, oh, that's a good person. you know, Just comparing to other human beings. You know, on the spectrum, well, they're a good person. But they don't have an understanding of who God is. They don't understand the seriousness of their sin, that even though they're, quote-unquote, a good person compared to other people, they've still offended a holy God and are still under judgment. And they desperately need Jesus. And so you have a lot of people on that side of the problem as well. And so, you know, as we see here, Paul wants to, throughout his ministry, you know, he says, you know, walk in a way that's worthy of the calling which you received. You know, and so if you, because Jesus is the one who's called us. And so that bar is high. That standard is high, but we don't do it alone. We have Jesus there with us as our great high priest to, you know, help us. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to help us, so we can have victory. And when we do fail, Jesus is right there to pick us right back up and to tell us to keep going and to try again. And the worst thing that happens so many times in, in the lives of people, um, when they make mistakes, when they when they commit sins, when they do things that they know that are wrong, that they stay in that place and don't allow God, you know, to. Heal them and help them to move forward and to move on. You know, and, and that compounds. You know, it's a compounding of error. It's a compounding of error. And we need to understand that God's grace and his mercy is available to us. So we have here the, the commander taking the soldiers to go down, taking Paul away so that he's not ripped into. Um, We see this happen, and then in verse 11 it says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. And it was day the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy And they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So again, we have a situation where everybody is willing to break the law, to break their own laws, to break... You know, the laws of Moses, they say we're, we're under the laws of Moses and we're pursuing the laws of Moses, and yet they're willing to throw the, all of that out the window when they feel like their system is in jeopardy. And there's something powerful, powerful about this for our lives that people will throw away their principles when they feel like their principles are being threatened. You know, isn't that kind of an ironic thing? People will throw away their principles when they feel like their principles are being threatened. And we need to be very careful not to do that. Live according to what you believe and hold to be true. Even if it costs you, don't compromise that. Otherwise, you know you end up maybe not in a severe situation, but um, using this sort of logic to justify, you know, using the ends to justify the means, um, and that's that's not appropriate. Um, certainly here it's not appropriate. Verse 16, Now the son of Paul's sister, so that's Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? Here we have, uh, I think, a principle that we need to grab a hold of and and to remember. God promised Paul that he would get the testify in Rome. You know, Paul has to be wise in his steps. He still has a responsibility to see the opportunities that God puts before before him and the provision that God takes and, you know, to, to make appropriate steps. But he can trust God that God's made his promise. He's not there. He doesn't have to fear. He doesn't have to fear this plot. And we see in it that God provides, you know, just so his nephew overhears this. And not just so happens, but God had, you know, protected Paul through his nephew hearing of this plot and able to go and tell the, you know, the commander um, and to, to provide protection for him. God did not promise Paul that he would be free from opposition. God did not promise him that he would die a natural death. But God has promised him that he would see him through to Rome, that he would give testimony to him in Rome. And Paul could take that to the bank in every situation that he was in. Because God is faithful to keep his promises. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And we need to understand that in our lives. You know, our lives are not easy. But God promises that he'll be there with us through it. I will never leave you nor forsake you is what Jesus says to us. So God is with us and he's with us in the hard times and through our difficult days. We also need to be careful that, that if we suffer, we're suffering you know, because we're, try- we're striving to follow God. We're not suffering because of the sins that we've committed you know that we've heaped trouble upon ourselves. There's a big difference between those things, as well. And so we have these forty people who made a plan, um, man, and, and that's tough. That's tough to, to deal with. That these guys were so intent on stopping Paul that they would make a vow not to eat or drink until they killed him. Um, you wonder how many how how many days. Those guys kept their vow, and how quickly they gave in to, I'm really thirsty. I'm going to die if I don't have, I'm literally going to die if I don't have something to drink. Uh, Because what happens, as we see in verse 23, uh, it says, He called two of the centurions and said, this is the, the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, Go get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law. But charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, uh, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some of the elders and one spokesman, one Tertullus. And they came before the governor to lay their case against Paul. And when he had been uh, summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying... Since through you we have much peace, and since by your oversight, most excellent, Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But I det- to detain you no further, I beg your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sects of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out From Him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied. Now, before we get to Paul's um, reply, it says something interesting here to see um, this, you know, Tertullus speaking about Paul, but first. You know, making these statements about Felix, about how wonderful of a ruler he is and the governor is. You know, what we could see, obviously, what he's trying to do here to gain favor. But he's stating all sorts of things that are known to be untrue. Felix is not a good dude. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, by, again, the standards, if you're just, if you're saying, hey, we go by the law of Moses... And it's because of the law of Moses and because of our belief in the Old Testament prof, law and prophets that we are accusing Paul to make these sort of statements about Felix is completely disingenuous. Um, you know, and, and it's pretty amazing how low they're willing to go in order to try to get what they want. Um, how, how incredibly low they're willing to stoop to get what they want. And so here's Paul's reply. Verse 10. Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Notice Paul says nothing good about the man. He just acknowledges you've been our ruler for a long time, so you know what's going on here. So I'm happy to make my defense before you. But he doesn't play that game. And I would encourage us to not play that game. He says, You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem, to worship. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or storing up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust." So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. Now, after after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I crowd out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Again, we see Paul bringing up the resurrection again. He's like always going to end with that because that's what he wants in people's heads to remember and to wrestle with. Um, And so uh, let's look through this just for a minute. You know, we saw again. Tertullus spends half of his words fawning over Felix. Uh, in a pretty disgusting way, the description by Tacitus, this is you know, a Roman historian, says he thought he could do any evil act with impunity. That was his description of Felix. So again, I mean, outside sources, outside of the New Testament, you know, unbiased in every way. That's what they call Felix. He could. He thought he could do any evil act with impunity. So back to, to this, point one, Paul is a plague who stirs up riots. Now, why is that accusation made? Well, that accusation is made because the Romans didn't want riots in their cities. You know, they wanted a, when they've conquered, they want a peaceful empire. The parts they haven't conquered yet, yes, they want tumult there. They want riots there. They want all sorts of problems there. But once they've conquered a land, they don't want riots in it. They want a peaceful reign where they're able to collect tributes from the people. They're able to expand their, their economy, to grow their economy, and, and to expand their resources and their power in the world. Um, and so, you know, that, that's something that we need um, to remember we should also remember that in, um, it, in Paul's defense, you know he doesn't really go into it too much. He he kind of makes it a localized thing when he says, "Hey, I've been in Jerusalem for these days. You haven't had any riot, You know, there weren't any riots there. You know, they came and attacked me. You know, sort of situation." Um, but if you look back throughout the Book of Acts and you see everywhere that Paul was, where there was a problem, you know he's preaching the truth. But it's the response of the leaders, the Jewish leaders, or in Ephesus, the response of those, um, you know, silver makers, uh, you know, to uh, the goddess Diana, that those were the ones who would then stir up a crowd and a mob. You know, Paul is just preaching what he believes to be true, and that could be accepted or rejected without any sort of violence, without any sort of riot. It could, you know, the leaders could say, we don't believe this, we don't accept this to be true, but we're going to leave it to each person's own decision and conscience of which they follow and believe. And have left it at that, but they refuse to do that. They've got to stir up a mob and go after him. you know. And so it's really the Jewish leaders in these different cities and places, and even here in Jerusalem, who were responsible for the riots as they are attacking the Jewish man Paul, who happens to be a follower of the Jewish man Jesus, who is our Savior and King. Um, but he just kind of takes a, a shorter version of that and says, You couldn't find, you know, none of these people here can find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Paul is, a, is, cons, is considered or is accused. The second accusation is that he's a ringleader as of a sect called Nazarenes. The reason they make that accusation is because the Romans allowed Judaism as a sanctioned religion, but a new religion would not have that protection and could be labeled as illegal. You, you know you would have to obtain the protection over time, but just you know something in their view as new being started would could be viewed as um, a threat you know to the empire. And could suffer you know, persecution for that. Okay? And so that was why they did this. Now, what we would contend is that you know, we don't have a new faith. We have the fulfillment of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you know, even the faith of Adam and Eve. You know, we, we would go back to the very beginning that we're, we don't believe you know, it, a new thing came on the scene when Jesus came on the scene. But the fulfillment of what God had already promised. So we're not, you know we're, we wouldn't view ourselves as part of some new sect or new religion or you know new thing. We would be the continuation of what God, you know, of, of man's original faith in God. Um, but so the way Paul argue, and that's the way Paul argues it. He's not he's, he argues that it shouldn't be viewed as something. You know, new or weird. He affirms his belief in all that is written in what we call the Old Testament, the Law, and the Prophets. He argues that you know Jesus is the fulfillment uh, of these things in Christ, specifically related to the resurrection. You know that's his argument that he makes. You know this is what we hold have always held to be true and, and would happen. And then the third thing was, that they accuse him was is that he tried to profane. The temple. The reasons that they make that accusation is because the Romans allowed the Jewish leaders the authority to kill any any Gentile who entered into the temple area. So that was allowed under the Roman law. So they accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the temple and wanted to, you know, kill him for participating in that. Even though that's not something that actually you know, Paul actually didn't do that. Um, you know, and so that was the uh, reason for that. Um, and so again, he, but he's going to end with the resurrection. He's going to keep going back to the resurrection because that is where our hope lies. Now what's cool here is that um, Paul is still in Caesarea. Um, let's get here in this section Uh, So he says in verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So again, Paul's back in Caesarea. This is where Philip, the evangelist, lives with his family. You know, there's a church established you know, here in Caesarea. Uh, this is where Agabus had prophesied that Paul would be in chains back in chapter 21. It's kind of interesting that he's right back in the same you know, place. Um, but he, he has this freedom. You know, his, his friends are able, the church is able to come and to, to minister to him. And that's an a, a extra grace you know, that God gives him um, in this situation. Luke would have been there, you know, as well, um, you know, and that would have been, um, it'd been pretty rough to have been in a prison in those days. If you didn't have relatives or friends or others that would come and provide some things for you, um, and to help you in that state, you know, they, the Romans weren't exactly known for, um, you know, prisoner rights and taking great care of those people. Uh, so, you know, but the, he was allowed to do that. Okay, verse 24, we'll keep rolling here. Um, it says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, wife Drusilla, um, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And has he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment? Felix was alarmed and said, go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when for two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Um, What's interesting here in this, okay, we see Felix the politician you know, he, he wants to give the Jewish leaders what they want, but only on his terms and to a certain degree, and so he kind of puts them off. He understands, you know because he's been in the region, he understands who the followers of Jesus are uh, and what they're about. Um, and you know what's interesting, um, you know, he, he probably hasn't encountered problems with followers of Jesus. He hasn't found followers of Jesus having riots in the streets. He hasn't found, you know, you know, lots of problems in their businesses or in other things because they're living a, striving to live according to the ways of Jesus. It should be known in whatever society it is, true followers of Jesus are like, the government would look at them and say, well, at least those people don't cause us a bunch of trouble. You know, they're, they're hardworking. They, you know, keep the laws as long as the laws don't offend Their conscience, you know, too far, um, you know, but they strive to do what is right. And they take care of their own and they take care of their neighbors. They take care, they give to people that they have no association with other than Jesus has told them to love their neighbors as themselves. So, you know, you would think in, in a lot of situations that governments would look favorably among those who are truly following. You know, truly try, striving to follow follow Jesus. Now we know that's not always the case, um, especially the more authoritarian you know a regime is, and any threat uh, to their way and to their power um, they want to to squish. Um, you know, North Korea would be an example of that. You know, China would be an example of that. Saudi Arabia would be an example of that. Um, places where it's very very dangerous to be a follower of Jesus even if you are following him in the most pure way possible. Okay, it's still going to be very difficult in those situations. But what's interesting here, Felix's wife was, was Jewish, but how did Felix get her to be his wife? That's part of the story here. Because Drusilla was married to another man, and shortly after that marriage, they hadn't been married for very long, Felix comes onto the scene and convinces her to leave her husband and to come and marry him, okay, which we know on all sorts of levels is wrong in god 's sight it 's just wrong in god 's sight for a man to to try to take away um, another man 's wife and obviously she 's complicit you know in this, she had agreed to it and and went along with it. So when Paul reasons about, as it says here in verse 25, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Speaking truth to power, we see this in the scriptures. We see John the Baptist lose his head for speaking truth to power. Here, Paul, he's got a little bit of, he, he, he feels, I think, probably a little bit of freedom, a little bit of extra freedom, because Jesus promised him he's going to get to testify in Rome. But he is completely unafraid here to speak the truth to Felix about Felix's own sin. You know, it's a one thing to tell somebody, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's another thing to tell somebody who has great power over you to tell them that they're wrong. And in this case, Felix, you know, in terms of our human perspective, Felix has a lot of power over Paul. You say you can't have any more of your friends visit you. You you know, he can at this point if he wants to, to say, well, I find you guilty of X and make up a charge and have him beaten. You know, there's a lot that even without killing him that Felix can do to make Paul's life more miserable. But yet Paul is still not afraid. And so that's a great lesson for us because there may be a point in time where your boss wants you to do something unethical. And you have to say, as a follower of Jesus, I am unwilling to do that. And here's why it's wrong. And it might cost you your job. I hope that we can be okay with that. But we also see here in this that Paul is going to be in this, is left in this prison. He's in this prison for a little more than two years. That's kind of a long time. When you think about a guy, you know, he's, yeah, he, was, he spent a longer time in Ephesus. He spent three years like that, but he's used to being on the move and going and doing and doing. And now he's got these two years and his people are able to come in and minister to him. But you also think about the, the prison ministry that he had. You imagine the guards coming in and the conversations that he would have to them. Um, it also gave him, I'm sure, a lot of time to worship in the presence of God. So, you know, it's all about perspective and how you look at things. You know, you could look at this thing as a, a great trial and tribulation for Paul. And for, to a certain degree it is. But it's also an opportunity for him. And if he's only focused about the tribulation, he's going to miss out on the opportunity. And that's so true, I think, in our, in our lives. It's so many times, that things in our lives, you can view it as an obstacle or as an opportunity. You, you can, use, you know, you can use, view it as an obstacle that you can't overcome, or you can use it as an opportunity to see the power of God at work. But so much of how that's going to go is going to depend on the perspective that we have about that. So much is going to depend on our perspective. And so we have to make choices there. What I love in this whole passage in verse 16, it says that Paul says, I I take pains, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And that really is a key to living the sort of life that brings God glory and honor. I always take pains. You know, he's saying it takes effort. It takes work. It doesn't just happen to live with a clear conscience before God and other humans. It takes effort. It's not just something that's easy. But it takes work to do that. It takes work to be consistent. To be consistently ethical in what you do. That takes effort. To strive to be consistently moral in your life. In a way that honors God. That gives... Uh, you know, And that you have a good reputation particularly among those who don't know Jesus, but also in the church that you have a good reputation. Those things take work. They take, they take effort. So we should strive to live noble before God as much as possible and before other humans as well. And that's where we're kind of getting up to, to wrapping up the issue. But I, I think that what we see in the life of Paul is that he's not afraid of death, and so therefore he has things worth living for. And I want you to think about this. I want you to make a list of things in your life that you're willing to die for. What in your life are you willing to die for? Because the reality is, if you're not willing to die for your spouse or your children, you're probably not going to live very well for them. Because, and it, because a lot of times the issue is, you know, we don't end up having to die in some dramatic fashion for our spouse or for our children. But that mentality had better be there, and, it, and then it has to play out in how we love them in day-to-day life and day-to-day business. But I'm going to contend this morning, we see very clearly throughout all of this that Paul is willing to die for Jesus and for the mission of Jesus. He's willing to, to physically lose his life for that. I'm just going to contend with this this morning. If we're not willing to die for it, then we're probably not going to do the best job that we could living for it. Not willing to die for Jesus, the odds are that we're not going to do, put forth our best effort in living for Him. Because in that equation, we're counting our own life more precious than Jesus is to us. And and so if that's the case, then we're going to be pretty limited in the types of sacrifices that we're willing to make for Jesus as we're living for him. But if you're willing to die, and that's actually real in your life, that you're willing to die for for Jesus, then you're going to live in a way that's a a wee bit more intense and, and radical towards him and his cause. And that goes back to the question that Jesus that Jesus asks Peter after his resurrection and, and the, the restoration of Peter, but that question of love, because <clears throat> when he says, "Do you love me?" and then and then he, Jesus says to him, "You feed my sheep." There's a lot of different things that we can look at in that that passage and we're not going to get all into that this morning. But, you know, he says if you love me then do the work. If you love me, do the work. You know, that live your life that way. That's what he's saying. You know, live your life for this purpose. Feed my sheep. If you love me. You know, and that's true no matter what God's called your vocation to be. That still that question is going to be there regardless of your vocation. Regardless of course, what you do with your with your with your your life in terms of that, that question that Jesus is still going to ask each of us is, do you love me? And a lot of times it's going to be in in connection with, do you love me more than X? Do you love me more than that? And for you, whatever your X is is going to be different than You know, somebody else in the room. But do you love me more than X? And you fill in the blank of what your own X's are, what the Lord speaks to your own heart in that. But do you love me more? And so this morning, as we take the bread and the cup, we have an opportunity to say, Lord, we love you. And, and, And it might be, Lord, I love you, but I know I don't love you as fully as I should. Lord show me what my ex is. That the answer is I love X more than I love you. But as we remember Him, the desire is that He becomes our first, our first love. Just like you know the the message to the churches in, in Revelation and with Ephesus, they had you know the good understanding of the Scripture. But He said, you know, I have this against you. You know, but you've left your first love. And may that not be true of us. May Jesus truly be, as a church, may Jesus truly be our first love, that we would love him more than X, whatever the X is for us at any time. And may God help us in that and to take courage and to take heart with those who have gone before us. And no matter the sacrifice those other believers who have gone before us, if they could speak to us now, would tell us worth it. 100% worth it. We just have a hard time agreeing with that objective reality because of our perceptions. Our perception that it's not worth it. Our Our perception that the costs are too great. Our perception... Of what God might ask us to do. And so we can miss out. We can miss out on, on how God really wants to use our lives for his glory and for his honor. Let's not miss out. Let's just weak, strive to love Jesus with all that we are and put it on the line for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word um, to us. We thank you for your love for us. Lord, we know we are precious in your sight, but help us not to count ourselves as precious, but to seek your presence, to seek greater love for you and for the things that you love, God. Help us to strive, and we thank you. That all of our striving for you, if it's done in you and through you, is not in vain. It's not in vain. So we thank you, Lord, for that your promises are true. As we go to take that bread and that cup this morning, Father, we give thanks for your Son. And Jesus, we remember you, our Savior, our Christ, our King. In your name, Jesus, we give you thanks. Amen.